Lecture 21 The Black Death Welcome back. In our last four lectures, we explored how a series of interrelated turning points between the years of roughly 1000 to 1300 dramatically reshaped the medieval world. Concomitant with a boom in population starting around the year 1000, we saw the rise of a persecuting society as more people tried to lay claim to the available resources. Anyone on the outside of the mainstream of medieval society, pagans, heretics, homosexuals, lepers, and especially Jews, became subject to prejudice and persecution. As we saw in Lecture 17, this resulted in a dramatic shift in the way Jewish populations were integrated, or not, into medieval society. In Lecture 18, we examined the natural phenomenon behind much of this, the so-called Little Optimum, or Medieval Warm Period, which meant longer growing seasons, better nutrition, and thus an expansion in population. In Lecture 19, we saw how people in this situation made the most out of agricultural advances to take advantage of this warming trend. While some advances, like the heavy plow, the horse collar, and the three-field rotation system, came into use as early as the 7th to 9th centuries, it was in the 11th to 13th centuries that their use became universally widespread as more and more land was brought under the plow to try and sustain a growing population. And out of necessity, people had to change what had worked for so long and try something new, simply to keep up with the growing number of mouths to feed. And in Lecture 20, we saw how the medieval world was becoming more and more interested in the arts, in literature, sculpture, painting, and more, in a way that it had not been since the Roman Empire. Petrarch's crowning as Poet Laureate in 1341 marks a significant turning point in that development. And so, by the middle of the 14th century, what we have is a population double what it was in the year 1000, and many more of those people are crowded together in cities, which had come back to population levels that we hadn't seen since the days of the Roman Empire. Those people living in the countryside were now in a land crunch situation, and excavation of cemeteries and analysis of their bones tells the story of a population suffering from malnutrition and which had to engage in, literally, back-breaking manual labor just to stay alive. There could not have been a worse situation than what we have in the middle of the 14th century when the plague travels west from China along the Silk Road and descends upon the medieval world. Scientifically speaking, this was the Yersinia pestis bacterium, which was transmitted by flea bites. The fleas hitched a ride on rats that were to be found on many a ship accompanying merchants, and when the rats died, the fleas moved on to other hosts, like humans. There were three main types of plague, bubonic, so-called because victims developed swollen lymph nodes, known as buboes, pneumonic, which was an infection of the respiratory system, and septicemic, an infection of the blood. All of them caused horrible suffering, and 95% of the people who contracted any form of the plague died. 
Some within a few hours, which is a blessing, one imagines. Some after lingering in agony for days or even weeks. It is interesting that a very small segment of the population who contracted plague managed to survive, and it was usually those who had contracted the bubonic form. From some perspectives, this might seem the best form of plague to get, as you might survive it. But from another point of view, septicemic might have been a more desirable option, as it could kill within just a few hours, so suffering was limited. Pneumonic was both deadly and could go on for several days before it killed you. Whichever one you contracted, it was not good, to say the least. Now I should pause here and note that Although most modern scholars refer to this event as the Black Death, it was never actually called this during the medieval period. Those who lived through it tended to refer to it as blue sickness or the great mortality or the great pestilence. The description blue sickness may refer to the bluish-colored bruise-like marks that many victims were said to have developed on various parts of their bodies, although no one is entirely sure about this. Because Black Death is the phrase commonly used to describe this devastating event, I will continue to use this term today because even if it's anachronistic, it certainly fits. The appearance of the Black Death in the medieval European world fits all our main definitions of turning point that we've been using so far in this course. It was an event that had an immediate and profound impact on those who lived through it. Many of its repercussions would not be fully felt until some years after the fact. And looking back from the vantage point of the modern world, we can see how it utterly changed the fabric of society and indeed laid the groundwork for the major changes and innovations that were to come in what we tend to think of as the Renaissance or early modern period. All of these changes are due to one simple fact concerning the plague. One-third to one-half of the population of the medieval world died within the space of just a few years. The population wouldn't even begin to recover until centuries later. But let's go back for a moment to the time when the great pestilence first made itself known in the medieval world. Let's imagine that you are a wealthy young man living somewhere in Italy, your name could be Francesco Petrarca, the subject of our last lecture, or another one of the great Italian poets, Giovanni Boccaccio. As you'll remember, Italy at this time is one of the medieval world's major trading centers, given its prime location on the Mediterranean, as we've discussed several times. Italian merchants ventured to the east, toward Constantinople, the Middle East, and Asia, south to Africa, and to all points in between and beyond. Urban life is booming on the Italian peninsula, as it never has been, and there is a vibrant culture of education, arts, and literature. All of that would be threatened by the appearance of the first wave of the plague in 1348, but there would be some unexpected benefits for those who survived, and for those of us who are lovers of the arts. The death of Petrarch's beloved Laura from Plague, for example, would spur the medieval world's first poet laureate to write some of the most moving verses the world has ever seen. And other artists were inspired, or compelled, to produce literature and painting and other works of art that reflected the changed circumstances of the world they lived in. 
The plague apparently first appeared in China and the Middle East, and then continued traveling westward, making its first appearance in the medieval European world probably around 1348, somewhere in Sicily or another trading port in Italy. For the poet Giovanni Boccaccio, who was living in Florence at the time, the first reports of a mysterious illness were nothing to get too alarmed about. The medieval world had seen plenty of cases of illness and death, but those on the scale of the great mortality tended to be one-offs, events that were more or less aberrations. But as the year 1348 continued, more and more reports began to filter north and west, and they were, to say the least, alarming. Boccaccio was one of those people of non-noble status who had benefited from the changes wrought on medieval society by the little optimum and agricultural advances. Boccaccio had been destined for a career as a banker, but decided instead that he preferred to make his living as a writer. As we discussed last time, this was something that would have been unimaginable in the year 1000, but by the year 1300, for a certain segment of the population, was entirely possible. In 1348, Boccaccio was living a comfortable existence in Florence, but the news out of the south was becoming more and more alarming. He might have read the chronicle of a Franciscan friar named Michele da Piazza, who was living in Sicily and had one of the ringside seats to the first bouts of infection. He writes, quote, "From the disease's onslaught there arose certain pustules the size of a lentil on the legs or arms." The plague thus infected and penetrated the body so that its victims violently spat out blood and this coughing up of bloody sputum continued incessantly for 3 days and not only did everyone die who spoke with the victims but also anyone who bought from them touched them or had any kind of intercourse with them end quote Although no one in the medieval world really fully understood how the disease was actually transmitted, plenty of people recognized that cities were likely to be hardest hit by the plague. So those who could manage it fled to the countryside. Thus, the well-to-do escaped to country retreats where they sought to ride out the horrors of the plague, which was soon raging through every major city in Europe. Boccaccio was one of these. and it is because of the plague that we have one of the greatest collections of stories from the medieval world inspired by contemporary events boccaccio composed a text called the decameron which took as its organizing principle the idea of a group of 10 young nobles whiling away their time in the country as far away from the plague as possible to pass the days each one would take it in turn to tell a story to entertain the others This approach to storytelling would eventually inspire other writers such as Geoffrey Chaucer who would try to come up with similar fictional premises that would allow the grouping of all kinds of different stories from genres one usually doesn't find together all in one text. It is in some ways a comfort albeit a small one that one of the deadliest events in the history of the western world could be responsible for some of its greatest works of art. But it is indeed a very small comfort because as the plague continued its virulent path through medieval Europe it left behind true horrors. Another Italian chronicler, Agnolo di Tura from Siena, is just one of many who describes scenes of families and friends abandoning one another out of fear of infection 
and who describes how the infrastructure of medieval daily life came to a grinding halt. Quote, No one controls anything, and they do not even ring the church bells anymore. Throughout Siena, giant pits are being excavated for the multitudes of the dead and the hundreds that die every night. The bodies are thrown into these mass graves and are covered bit by bit. When those ditches are full, new ditches are dug. So many have died that new pits have to be made every day. End quote. In his introduction to the Decameron, Boccaccio elaborated on these horrors. Quote, Many dropped dead in the open streets, whilst a great many others, through dying in their own houses, drew their attention to the fact more by the smell of their rotting corpses than by any other means. Funeral beers would be sent for, and it was by no means rare for more than one of these beers to be seen with two or three bodies upon it at a time. Many were seen to contain a husband and wife, two or three brothers and sisters, a father and son, or some other pair of close relatives, end quote. As the year 1348 wore on, it became clear that the sickness was only going to spread, and there was really no stopping it. Even more horrifying was the fact that letters sent from points east and south to those north and west detailed the spread of the plague and signaled that it was heading that way. So, for example, in France and in England, people were regularly receiving missives from those in Italy and Spain who had seen the plague firsthand, and these people also made clear which direction the plague was heading. Demographically speaking, the plague was a disaster for the medieval world. After a long period of growth, the population dropped dramatically. It is now estimated that between the years 1348 and 1350, which was the first wave of plague in the medieval world, probably around one-half, one-half of the population was wiped out. In some places, entire communities succumbed almost overnight. We lack accurate records, however, because in many instances, there was no one left to record the details. One chronicler even left a blank spot at the end of his record-keeping for someone else to record future events, but he noted that this was only in the unlikely event that anyone at all remained alive. Significant recovery in terms of demographic numbers would not really happen until well into the early modern period. One reason for this was that, in addition to killing off members of society of reproductive age, the plague also attacked a section of the population of the medieval world that was already prone to high mortality rates, children. The ravages of the plague meant that even fewer children than before were growing up and themselves reproducing. So not only was a significant portion of the medieval population wiped out as the plague advanced, but so too was the means for that society to replenish itself, especially given that outbreaks would recur every generation or so well into the 17th century and beyond. None of these secondary outbreaks, however, would have the dramatic impact or be such a clear turning point as the first arrival of the plague in the middle of the 14th century. In the face of such a terrifying and seemingly unstoppable enemy, contemporary accounts, not surprisingly, paint a grim picture of understanding and reaction to the plague. In every area of life, 
the world changed in the space of just a couple short years. Lords suddenly had no one to work their lands, and accounts tell of fields lying fallow or crops rotting on the vine because there was no one alive to harvest them. Trade was curtailed. While medieval people didn't understand exactly how the plague spread, they had enough sense to often turn away ships bearing plague-infected sailors or to refuse to purchase or use spices or cloth or other goods that had been transported from plague-infected areas. So while there was a surplus of goods, there were fewer people to purchase them. In economic terms, especially in the short term, the plague was a disaster for those who had become wealthy as merchants and other agents of commerce. At the same time, however, and somewhat paradoxically, there was a concomitant increase in some travel throughout the world as many people, believing the plague to be a punishment from God, sought to placate him by visiting various holy sites. Pilgrimage had long been a popular activity in the medieval world, with many people journeying distances long and short, from over to the next village, or to Rome, or even on to Jerusalem itself. And they did this to either atone for sins, ask for healing, or give thanks. When faced with the horrors of the plague, plenty of people felt that this was the only option left to them. They set out hoping they would survive the journey and be spared the horrors of infection, or else they hoped that, should they die of the great pestilence, the religious gesture they had made in their final days would help speed their arrival into heaven. Fear and panic led some to blame communities on the fringes of mainstream medieval society, Jews, lepers, and the like, for somehow causing the plague. Here we see again the interconnectedness of many of those turning points we've already discussed. The rise of a persecuting mentality did not disappear with the plague, but rather there was now more fuel for the fire. Numerous accounts tell of accusations leveled against Jewish communities, accusing them of deliberately poisoning wells or practicing some kind of witchcraft that brought the plague down on the medieval world. In horrific episodes that recall the atrocities of the First Crusade, entire Jewish communities were slaughtered by Christians who thought they were responsible for the great mortality. Some Jews were made to quote-unquote confess under torture to conspiring to spread the plague, evidence that the more zealous and hysterical inhabitants of the medieval world seized upon to justify the wholesale slaughter of entire Jewish communities. So great was the prejudice against Jewish communities that in 1348, Pope Clement actually had to issue an injunction forbidding the killing of Jews in an attempt to calm the widespread hysteria. In early 1349, the government leaders of several German towns took the unusual step of publicly announcing their collective belief that the Jews living in their communities were innocent of any crimes in an attempt to protect them. It was all for naught. Later that year, throughout Germany, once again, entire Jewish populations were executed by being burned alive. Similar atrocities occurred almost every place in the medieval world where there was a significant Jewish population. The fear of the plague and the population's helplessness in the face of it manifested in other ways. While some lashed out at those already relegated to the fringes of society, Others turned their attention to their own behavior and lashed out, literally, at themselves. 
Some of these people became known as flagellants, so-called because they traveled throughout the countryside, lashing themselves with whips as they went. The idea here was that God was punishing the world for their sins, and they sought to very publicly and violently attempt to atone for those sins by punishing their own flesh. By putting their self-abuse on display and moving throughout the medieval world, it seemed they hoped to get God's attention, because surely, it seemed to them, he seemed to have turned his eyes away from the suffering of his children. Other segments of the medieval population went a different direction. Feeling that God really had turned his back on them, they thought that there was nothing for it but to try and enjoy the time they had left on earth. These people, many of whom were religious leaders, if accounts are to be believed, engaged in all sorts of drunken debauchery. If the end of days was near, they reasoned, better to go out on a full stomach, sexually satisfied, and three sheets to the wind. So the short-term effect of this turning point was dramatic and felt in every area of medieval life. Religion, economics, politics, all of them were impacted immediately in the years 1348 to 1350. We have dramatic expressions of religious belief side-by-side with rather widespread abandonment of spiritual practice and hope. We have the curtailing of trade alongside the loss of agricultural production. Much craft and artisanal knowledge was lost, and traditions that had been handed down for generations abruptly had their lifelines severed. How does the cooper or barrel maker share the secrets of his craft if there's no one alive to teach? Where do you get your shoes if the cobbler in your village and the next one over and the one past that are all dead? Both church and secular governmental infrastructures were severely compromised. Who is in charge once the lord of the manor and his heirs and their heirs are all dead? If the archbishop has succumbed to plague, who is running the church? If the town leader has died and there's no clear line of succession, who takes over? The power vacuum created such chaos in part because there was really no one to fill it. With so many people concentrating on survival, stepping into a vacant position of power was usually the last thing on the minds of most people. In the years and decades after 1348 to 1350, the effects of the plague would continue to be felt. Interestingly, some social and economic changes that were already starting to occur were hastened along by the appearance of the plague, while others were dramatically altered by the plague's appearance or even stopped. For example, let's consider merchants again, and maybe even Giovanni Boccaccio's family, who were bankers. When the plague first struck, business probably shriveled up pretty quickly. Trade was curtailed, and there just simply weren't enough people to keep the engine of the economy going. But after the first outbreak, so in the later 1350s, those merchant and banking families found themselves better off than they had been before. For one thing, most of their competition had died, and niches that had been closed off or claimed by others suddenly became available to them. So the rise of the merchant class, which had been beginning and gathering steam during the years of the Little Optimum, actually got a boost from the plague. You'll recall that merchants didn't really fit neatly into the three estates model of medieval society, although technically they would be part of the those-who-work order. 
Merchants were worlds away from subsistence farming and had the potential to achieve wealth on a scale previously only available to members of the nobility. The plague simply hastened the social ascendancy of the merchant class. The other side of this coin is what happened to the real workers of the three estates, the peasant farmers. As we approach the year 1300, you'll recall that we've entered a situation where there is a land crunch. Compared to the world in the year 1000, there's just simply not enough land to go around to feed everyone, and those who do have possession of lands and hold the allegiance of vassals and serfs pledged to work that land are tightening their grip. In the year 1347, it looked as if those people engaged in farming would never break free from their social position. Unlike merchants, the peasants seemed locked in place. The plague changed all that. With the death of up to 50% of the population, suddenly there was plenty of land for the taking. Not only that, but for those nobles who survived, their world was radically upended. Whereas previously the shortage of land had meant that the nobles could dictate and direct the lives of the peasants who worked that land, after the first outbreak of plague, they instead found themselves in desperate need of workers. Suddenly, it was the peasants who had the power and the nobles who could be answered, or not, at the farmer's pleasure. If a serf working a particular manner in the year 1351 didn't like the way his lord was treating him, or felt that he should get a higher wage or pay fewer taxes, he suddenly had options that had been unavailable to him in 1347. He could just go down the road to the next manor, where the Lord, if he was still living, would gladly pay him handsomely for his labor. Better yet, the peasant could cast off the mantle of serving a Lord altogether and actually make a decent living as a freeholder, owning and working his own land. One cannot overstate the significance of this radical shift. A sure sign that this change was threatening the status quo came from places like England, which immediately after the plague passed something called the Statute of Laborers, which attempted to legislate the wages of workers, freezing them at pre-plague levels, and they also issued severe legal limitations on the ability of peasants to move through the countryside. The statute of laborers tried to keep peasants tied to the lands to which they, and probably their ancestors going back generations, had been bound. It didn't work. In 1381, there was an uprising, sometimes called the Peasants' Revolt, but in reality, it involved people from many more walks of life than the peasantry. In June of that year, a man named Watt Tyler led an uprising on London. Before it was over, the archbishop had been killed and the Savoy Palace burned to the ground. The message was clear. The world could not remain as it had. The plague had changed everything. And clinging to medieval ideals of the 11th century simply wasn't going to work in a post-plague, late 14th century world. There was a serious blow, at least in the short term, to farming, industry, and trade as suddenly there just weren't enough people to keep these activities going at pre-plague levels. But, as I've already noted, a rather serendipitous effect was that for those who did survive the plague, life turned out to be considerably better. The land crunch disappeared. Now there was plenty of land to go around. People on the bottom rungs of society suddenly had the chance to advance themselves, 
whereas the rise of a persecuting society and similar changes, like those affected by the Fourth Lateran Council, had earlier had the effect of cementing the social order and maintaining the status quo. In the wake of the plague, there was room for movement as never before. The three estates or three orders model, those who work, those who fight, and those who pray, was suddenly much more fluid, its boundaries more porous. After the appearance of the Black Death, the world would never be the same in terms of demographics, religion, economics, politics, you name it, the Black Death changed it. The effects of this turning point were even more long-ranging. Here, I think, are sown the seeds of much of the social movements of the early modern and modern period. In the wake of the plague, there was a new scrutiny applied to religion that was, in fact, the forerunner of the Reformation, that event considered so definitively a part of the fabric of the early modern. Here, social mobility opened up for the first time in a serious way. It was now possible for the son of a farmer to get himself an education, to work his way into civil government by virtue of his wits and intellect to a degree that hadn't been possible before. Those in the merchant class who survived the plague found themselves accumulating wealth, while those in the noble classes found themselves losing it. For the first time, we see the phenomenon of intermarriage between the noble classes and those formerly considered far below them in terms of social status. The nobles needed cash, and the merchants wanted titles. In our next lecture, we are going to continue to talk about death and illness, but from a much more positive angle. In Lecture 22, we will explore the turning point that was the flourishing of the university system and the structured study of science and medicine. Most of this knowledge came into the medieval European world via the Muslim world, and it was brought to the Italian peninsula by the merchants and traders who had long sailed the Mediterranean. From its first foothold in Italy, formal education and advances in science and medicine would spread to the rest of the medieval world, profoundly altering the nature of and attitude toward these fields and subjects, and again, laying the foundation for the scholarly and scientific advances of the early modern period. This turning point was in some respects given a boost by the appearance of the Black Death, as people were desperate for cures and answers. Although the scientific and medical knowledge of the medieval world was not fully up to the challenge, those members of its ranks tried to rise to the occasion. It was their determination and sense of urgency during the crisis of the Black Death that helped keep the university system going. In the aftermath of the plague, it would find itself more culturally important than ever.